Fuelful Warriors, episode 33. Somebody who gets shit done. It's all down to hustle. A sacrifice of their being and way of life. We think of 300, we think of the Spartan. Sort of the courage and conviction to face their challenges in life. It always does the right thing at all costs. Let's welcome Army veteran Miley Cardenas. Do your best to get through every situation. For me, it's about being a positive mindset and doing everything to the best of my ability. Hey, what's going on, Warriors? Timothy Lawson here, host of Fuel for Warriors. This is episode 33. We are in the new feed, uh, which you've figured out probably if you're listening to this show. If you're listening to this at Lawson Entertainment uh, and would like to start listening to uh, us via iTunes... You can go into iTunes and search Fuel for Warriors. There may still be two uh, feeds that pop up. The one, This one, the one you should be subscribing to, says official feed in the author section. Uh, the, other, the old one with Blog Talk Radio has been disabled and will soon be removed from iTunes. But we're on Libsyn, and it's being fed into iTunes, and it's awesome. Can't wait uh, for the lineup of guests we have in 2016. This week's guest is Army veteran Miley Cardenas. Miley and I first linked up when I had her on the Veteran Empire podcast uh, not too long, a couple years ago. And Miley told an amazing story of being in, being in the Army, battling breast cancer, being a single mother. One of the best interviews I've ever done uh, in any effort uh, of mine, any outlet. That episode is currently not available online anywhere, but will soon be in both iTunes and on LostInEntertainment.com, and I will uh, make sure that I alert everybody via Twitter and Facebook when the Veteran Empire podcast uh, has been re-released and is accessible. Miley is an overall badass. She is a great role model. She's inspiring and Every I follow her on Twitter and on Instagram, and I'm just so impressed by what she decides to do, what challenges she takes on, and how she continues to push herself to the limit uh, while still taking care of her personal life and doing th- what she needs to do as a mother. It's very, it's admirable, and uh, she brings a, just another great conversation to the table in this week's episode as we talk about her time at refugee camps in the Middle East. We talk about uh, we talk about sort of where she is in the post-breast cancer, post-breast cancer stages uh, and other, you know, their, her challenges and inspirations in life. And uh, Miley is just such a wonderful person. It's always a pleasure to get a chance to talk to her. I hope everybody is enjoying 2016 in the week that it's been around. Uh, I'm currently in Orlando at the Student Veterans of America Conference where I'm giving breakout sessions on veteran suicide and just really taken back by the feedback and by the impressions that I've got from people after doing those. Lock and Load Java is a production partner. They are an Army veteran-owned coffee company out of Salt Lake City, Uh, We partnered up to create this program for those of you that are new uh, to the podcast. Uh, Carl Churchill, uh, one of the co-founders of Lock and Load Java, wanted to be a part of this message of being a warrior. Uh, Fuel for Warriors was actually conceptualized off of one of their promotional taglines. He has a couple words that he wants to say to tell you about a, a little deal they have for listeners on to get some, uh, some, get some discounted coffee. Uh, and then we'll roll into my interview with Miley. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Hey, Warriors, this is Carl Churchill, co-founder and chief coffee officer of Lock and Load Java. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our friend and fellow veteran Tim Lawson as he interviews risk takers who've embraced the warrior ethos. I know you'll love our guest today. And when you're finished with the episode, head over to LockAndLoadJava.com and use the coupon code FUELFORWARRIORS to receive a 10% discount on our premium coffee and cocoa. Stay motivated, my friends, and keep challenging yourself. 
Alright, Warriors, welcome back to another episode of Fuel for Warriors. This week's guest is no stranger to Lost in Entertainment, Miley YC. Are you still going by Miley YC, or are you doing the full name now? No, I had to change it to do the full name, because the YC was something that people online started. <laughs> so. Oh, so it's technically Miley Cardenas now. Yes. That's right. So my, my apologies. I met you as Miley YC. If I may take a moment to brag about you a little bit, uh, you are a breast cancer survivor, a single mother, a army veteran. You've been on, uh, you were once on Veteran Empire, which was the most popular episode of that 100-episode program. Uh, you've contributed to One Too Many, which is something that uh, very that dozens of people have done, but yet you you stepped forward and you shared a story um, of veteran suicide inside of your network. And now you're returning to Fuel for Warriors to uh, to revisit your your fan base. The followers of Lost Entertainment always enjoy when Miley is on the program, so I'm very excited to give them a third edition of you and me talking together. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> I can tell. So. Uh, there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about, but we're going to start the episode like we start every episode, and that's talking about what it means to be a warrior. And through being an athlete and a veteran and a cancer survivor, you have many different uh, perspectives of this term, so I'm interested to hear your response. When you hear the term warrior, what do you think of? What does it mean to be a warrior? Oh, so I'm trying not to give you a cookie-cutter answer. To me, being a warrior means that you are you're a fighter. You uh, do your best to get through every situation. For me, it's about being a positive mindset and doing everything to the best of my ability. I kind of live my life in the way of, of you know, having a good heart, wanting to always be there, the selfless service side of things. But also, I'm an overachiever, so I always try to to be put a hundred percent effort into anything I do, no matter how small it is. Um, and I guess since you told a lot about my story, it's about never giving up. And my focus for the past four or five years has always been, has been positive mental attitude. Um, you know, since I, I think since I became an adult, it's, it's been about putting my head down and just going hard in everything. As I mentioned in the, or as the audience heard anyways, in the episode introduction, um, I'm actually re-releasing the Veteran Empire episodes because uh, they're missed, apparently. People have wanted to reference them and they're not in iTunes anymore. I'm going to re-release them and when I do, I'll make sure that I uh, make the Fuel for Warriors audience aware. So if they want to hear um, the bigger conversation you and I had about your battle with cancer and your recovery and stuff like that, they can reference that. It's been probably a year and a half since the last time you and I have spoken, Miley, and you are like me in that there is just tons of the stuff going on in your life every month. Uh, I feel like your, your Facebook and your Twitter and your Instagram is constantly showing me a new thing that you're doing and trying. Um, the, one thing that I, the one thing that first uh, prompted me to want to have another conversation with you is a picture that I swore I saw you share, or at least... It's, Something I saw you do, but I can't for the life of me find it. And so now I'm starting to question whether or not you actually did this. Um, you visited a refugee camp. I did. Not too long ago, correct? Yes, I did. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not uh, hallucinating. That was you, and I just can't. Ha I just can't. You, you shared a picture on one of your social networks of, I think, a little girl um, sitting by herself. And, and I think that's what probably, like, oh, I should talk to Miley. Uh, about that. Can you talk about what you were doing? Uh, yeah. So uh, I am blessed, fortunate to be best friends with also my writing partner. So um, uh, she and I actually <laughs> started with her. She works for Fox News. Uh, she's a journalist. And we've been friends for almost two and a half years now. And we've kind of been inseparable just because it's nice to meet someone who carries embodies the same things that I do. But she took a vacation, went overseas, uh, went to Jordan and a few other places with another friend and came back and she's in her beautiful brain. She's fascinated with foreign policy and, and the thing, all the happenings of the world. And she loves 
the cultural side of things, which is why we click so much because of my background is in cultural supports and civil affairs. Uh, so she came back uh, last, I'd say in, um, when did she approach this idea? Uh, 2014, probably around May, she brought it up that she would love to go to Iraq because at the time this, uh, the Kurds, you know, were, the Peshmerga were, t- you know, picking up arms and, and battling ISIS. And then there was a huge situation with uh, IDPs and refugees happening over there. So she mentioned she wanted to go and I jokingly said, I'll go with you. And she's like, really? Because I'm ready to plan it now. And, and um, that's kind of how our first trip happened. Our first trip, we went over there to, I was fascinated with the Peshmerga situation and also wanting to do some more research into a country that has fighting force that, you know, has a very interesting history. And, you know, with all the things that were happening with females in the U.S. military, they have a all-female battalion. And then you have the YPG on the the Syrian uh, Kurdish side. They have their female fighters as well. So the first trip was visiting refugee camps, IDP camps, and meeting with uh, different contacts within country. It was just myself and Holly and you know, and we hired a driver. And believe me, this is the first time I've been overseas that I didn't have a weapon and a team. And, you know, and so we kind of just winged it the first time around. <laughs> and there were moments where I was not happy with the situations. There were moments before we left <laughs> that I started questioning whether this was the most ridiculous thing ever. Because, you know, I'm, I'm military. We don't do anything just to do it. There's always a reason. Right. And Holly's a journalist and she goes, she has this uh, this way about her where she just wants to go with the, the interesting story. You know, she always says, we have this thing where we talk about extraordinary people facing extraordinary, uh, ordinary pe- people facing extraordinary circumstances. So first trip we went, it was a learning experience for us. You know, it was first time, my first time working with a journalist outside of me being in uniform because, you know, it's when you're in the military and do certain jobs, you don't want to work with the media because you're you have to protect them. You have to be aware of what you say. You have to be careful, make sure they don't mess up things because of the whole bleeding heart syndrome. So, you know, first trip, we butted heads quite a few times. You know, we were able to go into a, uh, a security facility over there and question two former members of ISIS, one who was Iraqi, one who was Kurdish. Um, my whole demeanor the first time though was I'm a very much, I'm very much a realist and Holly's an idealist. So when I was going into these camps, I was thinking like a soldier still. How far behind the, the camp structure was. I knew they were going to ask me for medicine. I knew they were going to ask me for, to help them money because they associate, some of them associate Americans with money. Um, so for me, I walked into the camps kind of with this mindset of um, I'm not. I have to make sure that Holly's safe, that I'm safe, and that um, I everything they tell you, there's always more information to be pulled because it's not the whole truth. So I was very closed off. I didn't get emotional. I didn't. I was very much a robot. So we uh, came back, and you know, um, definitely a learning experience. We came back and decided that we had to make another trip. Um, fortunately for us, we made. As a good journalist and a good civil affairs person does, we made a million contacts over there. So we picked our second trip for last summer. And on the second one, uh, things were a little bit better because we actually had, we made some friends with, uh, you know, a company out there and we had the whole logistical side of it. It wasn't so difficult for me because we had someone that offered to drive us. We had interpreters with us. We weren't, on, we weren't on our own this time. We had, you know, I had a little bit of, a little bit more peace of mind because of the people we were working with. So they took us to the camps we wanted to go to. You know, we met with the Pushmega. Um, so we then, I allowed myself to try to transition and become a human. Um, it's, you know, any military person can tell you that, you know, it takes a long, they talk about transition all the time, but it really takes a long time to get off of autopilot. And I allowed myself, and I think what happened for me was we went to, the first camp we went to, it was one we visited before, and it was a Christian camp, um, which, you know, most people are shocked to find out that there are Christians in Kurdistan. Uh, so we went to a Christian camp and saw some people that we had seen the year before, so that was really cool. And then uh, we went to another camp that we've been having so many issues getting to because of uh, they they were worried about media and all these things. So uh, we went back there and there was a fire. And I don't know if you saw a picture I posted of a little girl work, walking through the smoke. But uh, 
We, the minute we showed up, we barely got through a meeting with the the, the camp advisors and the, the, the charities, the NGOs that ran the camp. And then there was a fire in one of the huts. And it was because they lived so close together, they were using like the propane heaters to eat, to cook their food, and it caught on fire. And the whole camp was, uh, you know, rushing to the, the scene. And, and I think what hit me was we ran into a little boy that remembered us from our first trip. And he had changed so much, uh, not just with looks or age or any of that stuff, but you could, there was something different about him. And I was taking these photos and Holly was off interviewing someone and, and this little boy kept following me around and he asked me, um, do you want to know what happened? Do you want to know that? No, he says, do you want to know the situation? And, um, I said, sure. So my interpreter comes over and we start talking and this little boy, I'm watching him. And as a mom, to see someone again after a year, you know, it, you start, you notice things. And this little boy had gone from being this happy to be safe, happy to be, you know, to run around with his friends singing to this very serious old man at 10 years old. You know, and he was, the way he was talking, his whole demeanor, if you, if you could watch that, the video of him talking, you see the difference. He's talking about, you know, money, how the government's not giving the money. They just want to go home. You know, his mom is sick. His baby sister's sick. You know, the normal things that, you know, that people would talk about if they were living in this situation. And then he, I uh, asked him, I let him use my camera. And I think this is where the, the robot side of me starts turning off is uh, I asked him, he starts crying, you know, and he's telling me a story. And, and, and I said, well, what's changed in a year? And he said, last year when we came to Erbil, to the camp, I felt the Eid. So, you know, after Ramadan, there's Eid. And it's supposed to be yeah. a joyous occasion. And he said, last year when I came, I felt, I felt Eid. This year, I feel no Eid. And my interpreter, who is this really big man, really big, you know, uh, you know uh, militant type, like in the middle of saying his voice broke and as soon as he said it both of us looked at each other both of our eyes filled with tears and I'm like oh my god this is this is this is the side that I don't let out and I was trying to like pull it down but this little boy just was crying not crying but crying like a man would cry you know trying to hide it you know his head was down and so I gave him a hug and and we talked for a few more minutes and, and I slowly started to uh allow myself to see the situation as a human versus as a soldier. And that's actually the camp where I took the picture of the little girl. She was sitting there in the trash and I just was, I, I just was moved by it. Um, but this trip, the last trip was pretty special because we got to go to the Yazidi camp, um, which a lot of people, if they follow the story, they know that the Yazidis are kind of like gypsies that live up in they you know, they, they worship differently than regular Islam. Um, they live up in the mountains and they're very humble and kind of carefree people. And they were attacked and pushed up the mountain. A lot of them were killed. Daughters and, and wives were taken. And so we went to this Yazidi camp and I, I sat the three corners. So the corner of, what is it? The corner of Turkey and Iran right there. And so we went to this camp and it's tense city as far as the eye can see. And as we walked in, they were so welcoming. And the stories they were telling us were like, I mean, as a soldier, they're normal, but it was different to watch the, you know, my, my travel partner's reaction to these stories and the men who are with me. I'm not used to seeing men cry and not especially not Iraqi men. So uh, one of the gentlemen in there was telling us about he caught us in there because he thought we were doctors, of course, and he wanted us to look at this rash on his wife. <laughs> so, I mean... I looked at the rash. I told her it was a heat rash, and I told her what she could probably buy to to help it, you know. And uh, so they sit down and then give us their water, which of course I, as always, I'm an idiot and I drank it. Um, uh, so we we sat there, and these people who had nothing were offering us food and water and conversation. And I had to leave the tent because the stories. I just I wanted to see more, and I, I left at the moment where things were getting very emotional for him, there was this, the older gentleman, the head of the, that tent starts talking about, you know, what happened in, in, um, Sinjar. He says that, you know, everything was fine. And he had a neighbor who was Iraqi and that everybody was happy. And then all of a sudden he noticed that the neighbor sent his wife and children to Turkey and then came back. And the, like, I don't know. I don't remember exactly. It was either that night or the next night. ISIS came and this neighbor who he'd been friends with for 20 some odd years was killing Yazidis 
And so it was, it was, you know, traumatizing. So they fled. He doesn't know where his daughter, he says, I don't know where my daughter's at. I don't know where my sisters are at or any of my cousins. They were taken by ISIS. Um, and then I look at the young girl who's sitting in the room and then Holly asks, well, who is this young lady? And he says, she's someone we took in. She was all alone and her family had been killed. So this young girl is talking and so we asked her, I leave and I guess Holly asked her what happened and she says, "My, I watched my whole family be killed in front of me. Oh my God. And she's a beautiful woman and, and I'm going to post these pictures as soon as I get a website, the website running, but beautiful woman. So I'm outside while this is happening and Holly comes out and she's stumbling out of the tent and her eyes are filled with tears and the men come out and they're like coughing and like, and these, <laughs> these are very Americanized interpreters. So they're, they're coughing and hiding their face. And I'm like, what happened? And she's like, can you go in there and take a picture? And she tells me what happened. So I go in very stoic and I take a picture and I pull the camera up to my face and I'm zoomed in on this beautiful woman's face and her eyes are just filled with tears and she's trying to she's struggling to compose herself for this damn picture and I snapped two photos and I just I broke my rule and I went up to her and just I hugged her and she just collapsed in my arms and was crying and like it was the most emotionally draining trip I've ever been on in my life because this is why soldiers turn off their emotions, though, is because if you try to feel everything, just the human side of it, it's 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 very it's taxing. It is, it is. So I, uh, you know, that trip, these people. So we went to some camps. Some camps were like, "Oh, we need this. We don't have power. We don't have this." The Yazidis, they were amazing. They, we asked them, "Well, do you need anything?" They're, and they're they're still living in tents with those, you know, those fans that blow out cool air when you put water in them. They didn't even yeah. have air conditioners or anything. And they're like, no, 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 no. We don't need anything. We're happy. We have we have shelter, we have food. Um, we're fine. We just want to go home. And that was just in the middle of this situation. They're still very humble and grateful and saying, you know, we just want to go home. So the second trip, the Yazidi is just, uh, just amazing. And uh, the whole point behind this trip, though, in the beginning was we wanted to find... <laughs> It's funny, the whole point behind the very first trip for me was to find out if the women fighting, the Pushmega fighting, the females that were fighting for the Pushmega was all propaganda or if it was an actual situation, if it was actually what was happening. And it transitioned into us wanting to capture and, and tell these stories of these people, um, you know, kind of along the lines of the situation, like, do you even care? Do you care what's going on in the rest of the world? Do you look at the world through with this tunnel vision that everyone over there just because they're in the this this country, you know, this the Middle East, this this continent that you're that they're all terrible, terrible people. Um, we're trying to capture what happens to the people that are how people are affected by war. Just the bystanders and, and the children and, and it's very different for me. I'm gonna tell you, it's very hard not to fall back into that military mindset of, you know what? This is this is the job. This is what we're paid to do. Cause I'm not paid to do it anymore. Right. <laughs> so it, it's definitely a transition, and and we are working on a project to where no one pays for these trips. We pay for them out of our pockets. You know, we make all the arrangements. We make a million phone calls. Poor Holly makes a trillion phone calls at the end of the day, trying to set up things. And I I work my contacts on my side and. Um, you know, I'm excited because we are planning another trip, and this one is going to be even more different. And I, I can't, uh, you know, just because of the travel and the stuff, I can't really get into all the details. But this one, I'm excited for this one. You know, I'm nervous, but I'm really excited about this one because every time we go, we learn something that you're not going to find in textbooks and you're not going to find in a military sit rep. And the media is damn sure not going to tell you some of the stuff that's going on over there, you know. We were able even to visit the UN and being civil affairs, my relationship with the UN from my last deployment was not great. <laughs> it was not. I, I cannot stand the person I was working with when I was in Afghanistan and and you know, I hate getting the reports of how much money goes into these things, but how much money is actually being spent over there on the right things. So we met with the lady, a wonderful woman who works for, who's been working for the UN for almost twenty years and, and she was honest. She was she's from Texas and she, stuff she's like, May I speak, you know, off the record? And we're like, sure. And she laid things out and I was like, This woman, I wish I had deployed and worked with this woman because she gets it. Like the situation in one in, in uh Ankawa is these people need better generators, they need, you know, 
uh, more water, medication, whatever. They need the basic, the, you know, those basic necessities of life. And then some donor donated a crap ton of money to a charity and said, build them a $50,000 soccer field. So there's a $50,000, there's a bunch of these very expensive soccer fields all over, but nobody uses them because they don't need soccer fields. Yeah. So it's the same thing. And like this trip, my focus actually is on, I've been, you know, thanks to social media, I've been able to connect with a lot of the Westerners who've gone to fight with the Pashmega and the YPG. And I, you know, I've corresponded with them and, and we're going to link up when we go over there because, you know, a lot of veterans are looking for a fight. And they're wanting to go over there. I get messages. How do I go do this? How do I do that? And this time, my goal is to find out exactly what the Westerners are being, are being, are being, are being, allowed, being allowed to do. Because in relation to what I saw and what I've been told these times from the people working over there, they actually are not on the front lines. They're the, you know, KRG has put out this, this, I don't want to call it an order, but they're very wary of allowing Westerners to be put in a position where they could get hurt. Um, it just, it doesn't look good. And these people are very caring. And they, the last thing, like, you know, one, one driver told us, oh, I would die before something would happen. You know, we're like, okay, nobody's got to die today, but you know, thank you. So right. a lot of these Westerners are going over there. And unless you had some sort of specialty and by specialty, usually these Pashmega, they they, they very much admire special forces and the special operations people and, and the infantry guys, they, they admire them. And so those people sometimes can be put in an advisory role, but most of them will tell you, unless they've been there for years, and that we do have Americans that have been over there for years, they're not really able to fight. And, you know, my goal is this time not to, not to blow anyone out of the water, but I'm also discouraging people from becoming an anchor. Yeah. You know, you go over there and these people, you, you ask any of the Pashmega, what do you need? We need bullets. Guns and tanks. That's it. Not people. We need these things to fight because they're going after tanks with hatchets and and sticks and they will fight to the death even though even if they know they're not going to win. That is some warrior shit right there. Hell yeah! If you watch some of the, if you go over there and I mean you've been to place so you know what the news is like over there. There is no filter. They will show everything on their news that we don't show here. These guys will go out there and they will fight until it's till someone is dead or they die. That's just the way they have that warrior spirit. And, you know, I love the history of the Kurds and I, I'm not going to get into a huge history lesson, but they have an amazing history. I mean, some bad stuff like every culture does, but all these Americans are going over there and, you know, and I applaud them for their, their desire to help. I do. I really do applaud them. But anyone can tell you right now, DOD is not, is not making a statement on whether they, they agree with this or disagree with it because in all actuality, it's not our conflict yet. So once it becomes a conflict, though, Americans can't just be going over there and signing up with to fight with another military unless you want to give up your, you know, your rights to be in a, or your citizenship. So I think I think this trip is going to be interesting for my part because I am on a mission to talk to these people. And, and you know, I'm there's a couple Norwegians and Swedes and, and, and um, Aussies that I'm going to be linking up with. And they're very honest about what they're doing over there. You know, some of them, due to their their resume, they are in more advisory positions and probably seeing more action on the Pushmaker side. Now, the YPG side, completely different. YPG, the, the gangsters over there. They just, everybody goes. Everybody fights. So it's a little bit different. It's just... I, I'm interested to find out because I just found out there's another female that's leading, um, I'm using air quotations, the dream team over there. And it was in the army, uh, military times. And based on what I know from being over there and meeting with the, you know, people that work in within the KRG and, and the government over there, they're, you know, they've turned down a lot of medical support because that's not a necessity. You know, there's organizations that are offering to come in and do mobile medical stations and, and help them do Kazivac and stuff like that. And the KRG, their focus is not that. Their focus is, is, is protecting their country. And I always say, one guy said, if you don't, if he's like, if ISIS is knocking at our door, don't you think that if no one fights, they're going to be knocking at the U.S.'s door? <laughs> so it's kind of like, how do you argue with someone like that? So yeah. this dream team that's over there, not to knock her, she's brave for going over there, but she's talking about setting up, uh, trying to help on the medical side with medical training. And all honesty, I was told flat out that they're not interested in that sort of thing. So now we've got people just running over there to do something 
and for for what kind of you know what i mean like if you know if you want to serve if you want to serve sign back up join the u.s military if you want to serve in in that country then you better figure out a way that you're actually helping them instead of having four pushmega guarding you the entire time you're there and you're not able to do anything so you're taking four general four men or women off of the front lines because they have to protect this westerner and that's just my opinion based on my experience from being over there and meeting with these people but yeah it's definitely an interesting trip and i'm excited for the next one we're going to go back to uh we went up to sinjar it's pretty devastating up there uh we went back up the mountain and then we're going to go to a lot of different places this time around so it should be fun so, wow, I um, I would love to talk to you again when you get back from that trip. Absolutely. If if you want to talk more uh, about what you've learned on that trip and, and share that with my audience, that'd be great. Absolutely, I'd love to. Um, transitioning mm-hmm. uh, into something that maybe your fans are a little bit more. Uh, familiar with you on and, and curious about, are you still modeling? Uh, occasionally, when the opportunity presents itself. Um, so I noticed you were in Allure, is that right? Yes. Um, it was probably about six months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe a little bit longer, but yeah. Okay. The The quote that I remember seeing in that <laughs> in that article is, I'm not having nipples grafted or tattooed. <laughs> Instead, I'm having what looks like a lace bra tattoo directly on my breast. Now, I mentioned earlier that you are a breast cancer survivor, something that was missing in that context, or is pretty much the whole story. But you, after the after the surgery and everything, you were left without nipples. I was, yeah, after the, I had a bilateral, so a stage 3C. Um, yeah. It had gone to my lymph nodes. Uh, they went in and they removed my ovaries, like 22 lymph nodes and both my breasts. Um, after you have a mastectomy, you go through an expansion process. And, and after you get your reconstruction, which is usually a year later, sometimes two, you have the option to have them put nip- like tattoo nipples or create nipples. I didn't have the skin to create the nipples. And I was toying with the idea of getting the tattoo nipples on for a little while, but... And I realized that you have to keep going back and getting them um, worked on, like, uh, what do you call it, like, um, like filled touched in again. Up. Yeah, you have to go back and get touched up, touch-ups all the time. And I just, I'm not, I don't have that much time in my life to be worrying about nipples that I can't fill. <laughs> like, I can't, I can't fill them. There's no filling there. So what's the point? And not. <laughs> can, can you imagine that maintaining nipple tattoo would be a part of your <laughs> life routine? Like, I, like part of my yearly routine, like my annual checkup for my <laughs> my ta- my nipple tattoo touch up. Uh, so, have you started on that? Have you started on the the lace bra tattoo yet? Not yet. So I have the design. I already have the the drawing and everything. And and I was linked up with this amazing tattoo artist, really young guy who's actually uh you know um, a metal musician. Uh, out of Orange County, and you know he had some personal issues coming. We were supposed to start it right before that article came out, and uh, he had some you know personal issues come up, and he, he's just kind of like you know I don't think you want me tattooing on you at this moment. I was like you know what you're right I don't thank you. So I I was waiting around for him, and so I contacted him probably maybe four months ago, and I was like hey dude you still want to do this or not? And he's like still not tattooing very much right now so i'm on the hunt for a really great tattoo artist who has who has the ability to capture the like i want like a delicate lace tattoo so uh my goal though is to have it done before the summer so that it's done before breast cancer month next year or this year so which which month is breast is it september october october that's right because the nfl is decked out in pink yes that's how I remember that. If it wasn't for them, I'd forget that breast cancer exists. I'm, I'm glad the NFL is willing to do that for us. Yeah, they're pretty amazing. But yeah. Yeah. Any other? Go, go ahead. Yeah, that's uh, the plan. That you know, when I think about every time I think about getting done, I'm like, oh my god, is that gonna hurt? You know, because tattoos don't tickle, but it's like on that that area is so thin. Yeah. Gonna, so I'm, we'll see. I I find myself watching videos of other breast cancer survivors getting tattoos and seeing if they're making faces and stuff. And I'm like, okay, you know what? It's going to be okay. The other part of your life that we're familiar with is fitness. You're a, you're a gym head. I see the 
the gym and workout memes uh, come through your social media timelines. What are you What are you doing right now for activity and fitness? What's your focus right now? Well, last year uh, I did. You know, I I think I told you this last time. Ever since I was diagnosed, I do one majorly challenging physical thing that I've never done every year. You know, the first year while I was going through chemo, I ran a marathon in Portland. The second year, I did um, an extreme terrain half marathon in Hawaii, which really sucked. And I think I think I met my quota of running, or at least I thought I did. Um, uh, this past year in June, I partnered up with uh, Allied Forces Foundation. It's an amazing organization, by the way. It's a great, uh, like, it's, it's, it's a group. I call it my group therapy. We partnered up, I partnered up with them, and I went over with the, an American team to Scotland, and we did what was called the Catterin Yomp with uh, some Scots and some Dem, from uh, some soldiers from Denmark, and it was, it was a crazy adventure. One, Scots can drink, and there's no way I can keep up with them. But we, the Catterin Yomp was, was, I, Got it. So I did my, oh, I missed one. Then I did bodybuilding competitions um, in 2013, 2014. Last December was my last bodybuilding competition. So I uh, transitioned. And when you, after you do bodybuilding competitions, like fitness is more of like a, oh, I probably should do this thing because your whole life was eating right in the gym for, you know, what, six, seven months for me. Yeah. Because I did four back to back to back. Um, so from, Probably January until June, I was training for this Catarin Yomp. So we go over to it's what it is. The Catarin Yomp is 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 a a Yomp is a Royal Marines term. It's like a a terrible 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 ruck march, like terrible. So uh, you have the choices. There were three different or three different choices you could do: um, twenty twenty two or twenty four miles, thirty two miles, or fifty four miles. And you have to do it within 24 hours. So we went over there, and in our group we had a you know a bunch of warriors. We had some amputees. We had some other gentlemen that were out there with us, and their wives. Some of their wives came with us. In my group, I was the only female soldier, as per the usual. So we go over there, and and I decide that you know what I'm doing the whole 54. Another genius idea by Miley. <laughs> I'm not going to lie by my shoes. So I had these amazing 511 boots that I started with. And that terrain is so awful and wet that my boots fell apart. Gave me a, not only gave me a blister, which I haven't had blisters since I was a private, gave me a blister. So I had to do the rest of the yomp until that night. I did most of it in my, my, my chucks. Which is awful, by the way. Wow, that sounds horrible. <laughs> so I did. Walk, I barely like walking down the street a few blocks in my trucks. Like at that point, I'm like, these are a little too thin for any extensive walking. I might get a cab if I have to go any further. How how so how how long how much of this hike did you end up doing in your trucks? I did the first ten miles in the boots, and then I did everything until the last. I think oh. the the last one. We got to silver, which is the 35 miles. I did. What twenty twenty five miles in my chucks? Oh my goodness! And they were I mean, soaking wet, and so the last uh, the last bit was to get to the fifty four miles. Um, I could barely. I had to put my boots back on, and I taped them around my ankles because they weren't. I mean, at this point, they were they were done. Taped them around my my feet, and um, my I stuck with the guys for the, there was only four. Four of us that completed the full 20, uh, 54 in our group, because the rest of them, you know, I was surprised. Some of our, we had a couple amputees that were hardcore. They did the whole 35, and they're like, you know what? My stump can't handle it. I'm out. I was like, go for you. So <laughs> by the by, silver, it was like 11, it was like 10 o'clock at night, and I could barely walk, so I put my boots on. I stuck with the team. I was with a Scott Sergeant Major, a captain who is, uh, actually stationed out in San Diego, and um, I think a mar- another a Marine from Camp Lejeune was with us, and so we were we were humping it the rest of the night, and probably around because we had to be in by 10 a.m. or something like that, and so probably around we were probably maybe like five or six miles out, and they were just raring to run. I was like, just go, please leave me, just go, and so I was like, I could barely move my feet. Um, so I, I, I pushed it, 
until maybe I was about three and a half miles. And the thing with Scotland is they have this story that they tell you after the fact that there's this old fable, I guess, or something, where there's a traveler and he's walking through Scotland and he comes up to this gentleman and his wife outside the house and he's like, oh, how far is it to such and such place? And the guy looks at him and he's like, oh, it's like five or six miles. The passerby thinks them and he keeps going. The wife looks at the husband. He's like, why did you tell him that? It's like 10 miles. He's like, so he'll be motivated to keep going. They did that the whole damn way to us. We'd stop at a station. They fed us the whole way, like gourmet cheese and more food. Anybody who loves Mars bars, they have them there. Um, The whole damn way, we'd ask, how much further is it? And they're like, oh, it's only six miles. Go, go, go. 15 miles later, what the hell? Like, can you can you give me a direct answer? So by this time we were we weren't asking anyone else. The team went ahead. I think I was maybe I guesstimated I was like three or four miles miles out. I sat down because I was moving like I was 105 years old. Everything hurt. My feet were demolished. I fractured my foot and I had two. <laughs> according to my doctor, I had a fracture in my foot, uh, shin splints, and then a uh, a minor tear in my ACL. So I could barely walk. And I sat down. I was like, I'm so done, but I'm only three or four miles out. So I took my boots off and I put my flip flops on. I finished the rest of that thing in my flip flops. I was like, I can't. I just can't. So I finished it, came in and everyone else had gotten in a little bit before me. So those of us who did the full 54, we maybe got 30 minutes of sleep before we had to be awake and pack up and get ready to head back to the barracks. I was dead to the world. Everybody wanted to go party and drink. I was like, nope. I can't see straight. I can't, I can't breathe. I can't move. It was bad. So I did that one. And then that same group somehow convinced me to run another damn marathon in September. So I ran a marathon. But it was, the marathon was an amazing experience because the first 13, I'm not a runner and I'm a dumbass and I don't train properly for these things. So um, I didn't really train for the marathon as I should have. So the first 13 miles, I was happy. I finished in less than two hours, and I was had my head down. I was like, all right, here we go. And I go around the corner to start running, and I run into, I see this female and her husband that were from Australia that I, you know, that were in our group, and I go to run past them, and I notice that her husband is holding her up. And I was like, in my mind, you have that struggle. Do I keep going? Do I stop? Is this a race? Should I stop being so competitive? So I stopped. I turned around and I went back. Turns out this girl has, she's one of the first Australian EOD. She was a former medic and then she's first Australian EOD. Um, but she has MS. Her husband oh, wow. and I carried her, not carried her, but we held, we, we walked on her sides and held her up for the last 13.2 miles. The whole way. It, we cried at the end of it, all three of us. Like, we were motivating her. I was kind of a dick at times. I was like, you are not quitting because she's like, I can't. This girl fought all the way to the end. I was so freaking proud of her because when we crossed that finish line, we were maybe, you had to get to the bridge. And I don't know, you lived in D.C., right? Um, I, I currently live in D.C. So, you know, the marathon, is you have to, everyone has to beat the bridge. Otherwise, if you don't yeah. beat the bridge, you miss it. Well, I messed up and I thought, I thought we had beat the bridge. I mean, I was like, girl. We beat the bridge. We're good. We're home free. <laughs> she was motivated for like another five miles. And then someone says, okay, you got to get across the bridge. She's like, I thought we beat it. I felt so bad. But, <laughs> but we beat the, I told her, I was like, so what? You did it. Now keep going. So we crossed the finish line. And I kid you not, I cried with her because she cried. She's like, uh, her and her husband went to see a massage therapist before they came. And her husband said, oh, you know, we're going to go do the, the marathon. The massage therapist was like, oh, that's wonderful. The wife gets her massage. She says, oh, yeah, it's like, I'm, I'm going to do a marathon in the U.S. And this lady told her, oh, you shouldn't do that. You're too fat. You're not going to make it. Oh, I was like, wow. please tell, give me her name and number and I will find this, this bitch and fix this. So right? She made it. So, it, you know, that was a, for me, it was it taught me a valuable lesson. That's not always about the it's not always about the time. It's about the teamwork it's about all those things and you know it's, i don't know it's, it was a great experience so this year i have planned on i have let's see a friend of mine challenged me to do a thousand miles in um 365 days so we're doing we're doing that and so so i have a question about that because i've made a similar challenge to myself are you doing, is it a thousand, like, certain type of miles? Like, or is it running, hiking, like, what what kind of miles? 
are well, included. It, it says run walk. So okay. Um, so Shannon and I have challenged ourselves to 2,016 all-purpose adventure miles. So like running, hiking, um, any like physical activities, like kayaking would you know like so if we kayak down a river, like that that distance would count and. No, knowing that you set half the, the you set the bar half of that and and that that's going to be a challenge. I'm sort of dreading the bar that I set for us. Well, uh, a thousand uh, from according to this website, a thousand miles is is the equivalent to running 38 marathons. So I don't know why I did that. I think it was because so since those injuries actually you know with the whole fitness thing, I've actually yeah. so I used to weigh a lot. I used to weigh 213 pounds. So losing the weight and, and keeping it off and being strong and being healthy was a huge thing for me. And when I injured myself in, in on these adventure trips of mine, I was pulled out of the gym completely. Um, so, you know, you get in that like downward spiral of screw it. I just want to eat what I want. I don't want to do this. So I put on I put on weight. And, it, you know, with my with my situation with the cancer, I can't afford to be overweight. I can't afford to be healthy. So now I find myself trying to do these things, you know, to get back in shape and, and a shape that's not round and, and be healthy. So the thousand miles, I, I signed on with this with one of my CSD sisters because I knew a challenge would motivate me to do my cardio, which I hate. And then I have, what do I have coming up? Uh, I'm trying to find another challenge to do. Uh, we're doing the, oh shoot. We, oh yeah, there's the other one. I keep getting challenged by people. We're doing the baton death march in March with the same group Allied Forces Foundation and I'm so excited because I've always wanted to do the Baton Death March. Me and uh, myself and three other of my instructors when I was in the Army, we trained for it for months just to get told that if the unit's going to pay for it, we have to compete against other people. So now I think we're going to be on small teams but we're going to compete for time and I'm so excited about it. I'm, I'm so excited. So the thousand miles for the year is is keeping me up on my cardio. So I'm training for that, and and I'm probably gonna do one more one more big thing this year. I'm not sure what it is, but I'm gonna. I don't know. We'll figure it out. It'll something involving muscles, I think. <laughs> I like that. So to man, yummy, yummy inspired. I'm gonna look into the. I want to do some cool that that uh, that that Scottish yomp sounds. Oh, it's amazing. I'm going back. I, I think we're actually trying to set up where we do it again this year. I awesome. absolutely can't wait because I'm doing it for time. I want to yeah. finish it. I want to finish because last time I finished in like 20, 22 hours, I think. This time I want to I want to do even better. Man, I want to try that. It's so much Miley, fun. we each and every guest uh, has to present a challenge that they're facing currently, whether it's per- personally or professionally, what's a challenge that you sort of found yourself facing right now, and what are you doing to, to better overcome it? I think the challenge that I'm facing right now is, is it's the same, I have two small challenges. One is, it's an ever going, ongoing one, of accepting the fact that I'm no longer in the military, and that um, it's okay to transition and, and, you know, be a civilian, and and not feel guilty about not not being able, you know, because I was medically retired, it wasn't my choice. So, I, uh, I'm tr- that's my that's always my biggest challenge. Um, my other one is is trying to make decision make a decision for my career that is going to benefit my family, because I don't answer to Uncle Sam anymore. So, I have to make a choice. I have I'm I'm, I'm grateful that I have the choice of you know which jobs I'm going to take or you know whether or not I'm just going to keep going to school and, and, and doing these adventure things or do I go ahead and ex- and get some stability in my life. So I'm, I'm making this decision. And then also my, one of my closest friends and I, we're, we're going to be launching a, um, a, uh, a business and slash organization for veterans. So that's, a, that's going to be a huge challenge for us because it's, it's branching into something we've never done before. Wonderful. I hope. Uh, I hope offline you can. Uh, I'd be interested to hear about what you got going on. Oh yeah, absolutely. So and then, this is, the name of the show is Fuel for Warriors. You talked to us about what it means to be a warrior, 
what you're going through right now, challenges you face. So what is your fuel? What is inspiring you every day to get up and face these challenges and to continue accomplishing these things? Well, first, it's my daughter, always. I just look at her little face. And, and, and now she's become – she's so grown that she says things to me that I'm like, can you just – can you just let me not do that today? And she's always my biggest, you know, she's my biggest motive. Like I tell her, all right, so mom's got to stick to her macros and, and hit the gym. And this little girl's like, okay, wake me up at 5 a.m. I'm like, why do you want to wake up at 5? She's like, because if I'm up at 5, you'll go to the gym at 5. I'm like, crap. Now she, so now wow. she holds me accountable, which is great. Um, my second thing is life. I've, I'm fortunate enough to be giving, to have been given several opportunities, you know, going through a, a terrible situation when I was, you know, with assault and all that stuff when I was in the military and then, you know, deployments, I made it through those. I survived cancer. So for me, my biggest motivator and inspiration is life. I get to look at people living their life to the fullest every day. I get messages from wonderful people who are facing some of the challenges that I've faced and, and, and it just motivates me and inspires me to keep going and seeing I want to get to the point where I can look at any veteran who's struggling with what they're going to do on the civilian side or saying that they can't transition. And I want to say, you know, I, I was that person. I was I was Operation Militant Robot. Like, that's, that was me. Like, I ate, slept, breathed the military. And I plan on staying in until they put me in my grave. And I want to be able to show them that you can get out and you can transition and you can use the skills. You can doesn't mean you stop being who you are, but you get to use your skills in a different way, whether it's in an office environment or contracting or whatever it is. And then it's not that you could they can also branch into something in the arts, whether it's, you know, music, television, modeling, photography, drawing, whatever it is. I, I'm inspired every day by I seek out veterans who've done something different with their careers. And that's my motivation. It, it keeps me it keeps me going, keeps me waking up in the morning. Very cool. Miley, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and my audience. Of course, we're following you on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, all at Miley YC. And we're I'm excited to, whether it's on this show or another one of my programs, to get a chance to talk to you about your uh, your next little adventure to the Middle East. I'm excited. Thanks so much for having me. It's always awesome to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Be sure to head over to LockAndLoadJava.com using promo code FUELFORWARRIORS for a discount on your purchase. Also head over to LostInEntertainment.com for more of my programming. Stay strong and stay motivated.